Hello, and welcome to the Viva Albertos podcast. My name is Ben Humphrey. I'm the site manager at VivaAlbertos.com, a St. Louis Cardinals community. I am coming at you uh, this evening, August 16th. The Cardinals just lost to the Marlins and failed to sweep the fish. I'm pleased to say that I am joined by Aaron Schaefer, who you may know by his pen name, The Red Baron. Aaron, welcome. Hey, Ben. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Eh, Cardinals lost today, so I'm a little little frustrated. I feel like they should have taken that game. Uh, some shoddy defense. kind of. You know, I mean, Carlos was okay. He was not to the standards we've expected here lately. But no walks, five strikeouts. I mean, you know, the... Uh, I feel like the stuff was there. I feel like the command was pretty much there. The defense wasn't great, and he made a couple bad pitches. So, you know, it, it could have been better, but I feel like they probably deserved a little bit better, too. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. It was it was a frustrating game. It just it wasn't, it wasn't particularly crisp. Um, you the know. hitting was fun. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, well, not all the hitting. Certain types of hitting. Watching Stephen Scott and uh, Jason Hayward hit home runs was pretty cool. That is uh, always very fun. That was Stephen Piscotti's first major league home run. I wish Jason Hayward would learn to hit home runs against non-Marlins teams. <laughs> That's uh, again, what I really wish. Against NL Central teams would be nice. There you go, yeah. If he could just learn to pretend that like the Cubs are the Marlins. Well, maybe they could get a uh, Marlins guy to sit behind home plate. Well, he probably will be sitting behind home plate in the postseason. Maybe that'll be enough to fool Hayward into uh, some Marlins-type hitting. Well, you know, I mean, let, let's hope. Because dinger Jason Hayward is way more fun than ground ball single to right Jason Hayward. That's definitely true. Uh, Although, ground ball single to right Jason Hayward, not without his charms, not complaining, just saying the home runs are fun. Yes, they are fun, and I wish they weren't uh, an endangered species in this, you know, expanded strike zone uh, post-C-League era Major League Baseball. It, it is a little, it feels like the offense is a little too far down, doesn't it? Yeah, I think... I mean, I, I don't want to go back to the days of the late 90s. I like I like more of a balance. I like maybe a little pitching heavier kind of league, but where it is right now, it, it feels a little, it feels a little dull. You know, it, it feels a little, uh, a little too depressed. I, I would like to see a little more offense come back in. I'm not sure how they do that though, without making really drastic and possibly bizarre changes. Lower the mound anymore. You know, I mean, a, a lot of these kinds of things. I don't like the proposals where, oh, you can't change out relievers constantly you know, that a, a reliever would have to throw a full inning. Some of these weird things that sports writers come up with, I don't like that stuff. I, I don't want to limit the strategy of a team or any of this other kind of stuff. I'm, I'm kind of hoping it's just cyclical and it starts to lean back toward hitters as uh, teams see that offense is so rare. Because that kind of feels like what happened with pitching, is that teams just focused in on pitching. They saw, hey, we, we, we can't get anybody out, so let's really kind of bear down on pitching, and they got better at it. Um, you know, obviously with the data and the shifts and all this other stuff, that is a big part of it. But part of it just feels like teams decided this is the thing we need to be better at. 
the thing that's most interesting to me to come out regarding the offensive decline uh, is the data using pitch effects on the expanded strike zone and the low strike in particular. It's true. The, the zone's really wide and really low right now. It's kind of like a, a Pontiac Grand Prix from the late 90s. <laughs> yes, the, the strike zone is a Pontiac Grand Prix. That's the dumbest thing I've ever said. They are going to have to change the way that they are grading umpires. And I think they're going to have to start doing it in spring training next year. I don't know if they will, but I think they should. And mm-hmm. they should. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be difficult because there are going to be a lot of veteran pitchers who have taken full advantage, and young pitchers for that matter, uh, trying to establish themselves as big leaguers who have taken full advantage of that low strike. But when you look at the increase in velocity and then you add the increase in the strike zone size, particularly the low strike, it's just brutal for hitters right now. And they're going to have to do something on that front. Uh, the other thing is maybe they change the ball again. I'm a, I'm a pretty strong believer that they change the baseball. Uh, I think so too, honestly. I think they and, – and I know that one of the theories of what happened to offense in the 90s – beyond steroids and smaller parks and expansion was also that they went to what it was it machine winding of the cores of the baseball to where they're tighter and the ball maybe flies further or something. Yeah. And, and I think maybe they kind of nerfed that later on trying to, uh, whether nefariously trying to make it look like they were being more successful weeding out performance enhancing drugs than they were, or just because they looked and said, well, this this clearly isn't the way we wanted it. Let's try something else. Could be innocent, could be less than, but I do feel like maybe something different occurred with the baseballs. I, I agree with you. And and the reason I say that is, um, number one, I think they did something with the baseballs on the front end just because of the way the offense increased. It was just uniform league-wide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there were no real spikes or anything it wasn't uh well you would think like certain guys or certain demographics changed no the whole league just in started hitting way more home runs one day right and so that's weird to me because i don't think number one i'm someone who thinks you know steroid usage probably started in the 70s and so you know that makes me a little hesitant right there to say this is what caused this because i think you know there are other factors the parks you talked about and all those things but the way it just spread at once instead of like one team or two teams and then a free agent goes somewhere there's a trade and steroid usage starts there you know you you would expect to see it in clusters you would expect to see pockets or certain guys not just the whole league all of a sudden, there's this spike. So, yeah, I, I think it probably has a lot to do with baseballs. But, uh, like you said, I mean, you know, they all the all the parks that teams started building, once they got out of the cookie-cutter era, uh, out of those old concrete donuts, it seemed like a whole lot of the new ones that came in, for a while there anyway, were pretty hitter-friendly. You know, places like Baltimore and things like that. Yeah. They were building a lot of parks that had at least one part of the outfield that the ball just flew out. That's that's just a really interesting dynamic because I've always... One of the things... You know how ESPN's home run tracker, you can do the overlay so you can take a batter and 
he gets traded, and then you can put his home runs on his new home park. You know, oh, really? I don't think I've ever seen that feature. That's and, pretty... Yeah, but to me, it's it's kind of based on a false premise that if you that the ball would travel the same in yes, a different park. Yeah, exactly. And so that's what I think is so interesting, like these more open parks. And you'll hear terms like there's a jet stream to right center. Mm-hmm. Or there's, you know, the ball just dies if you hit it to left. Well, I mean, remember when the Cardinals were building Bush 3, they planned on it being a, a fair kind of neutral yes. ballpark. And, yes. and I take them at their word on that. I think they thought they were building a neutral ballpark. And it is clearly not. That, that ballpark kills home runs. Well, and it's interesting because kill all offense, just the long ball specifically, and I don't think they meant for that to happen. It's just one of those things you can't really test it once it's in the real world and it's sitting there. Then all of a sudden you look and you say, "Oh, guys can't hit it out." You brought that up. The dimensions were close to what the dimensions were at Old Bush after the renovation um, at Bush Two. After they renovated it and put in, you know, they moved in the the fences. Put in the big scoreboard and all that other stuff. Yeah, yeah. But it's a different, you know, it's not the cement cylinder, and it's facing a different direction. And it appears as if that, that means the ball doesn't carry as well. And that's something that I think it's difficult to measure, but I'd be willing to bet that if you, and I wonder what type of data the teams have on this. But I would be willing to bet that if you hit the ball with the same trajectory and the same exit velocity, you know, to the exact same part of the ballpark, you will get a different degree of carry on that ball uh, during a day game versus during a night game and from ballpark to ballpark. I, you know, I think there would be differences in the way the ball carries. Well, we know there are in certain parks, at least. I mean, you hear about the marine layer all the time, like in Seattle yeah, uh, or in or in San Diego, you know, that certain times of the day, I think it's night games in particular, when, you know, the cool air kind of rolls in off of the, you know, because they're close to the water and everything, and, and as that sort of cool, moist, very dense air rolls in, it completely changes the way the, the, the ballpark plays and completely changes the way the ball flies. Yep. Unfortunately, we can't blame atmospherics or even the ballpark for Colton Wong's downturn in offensive production. Uh, I went through Aaron because it's one of those things where it was clear he was struggling, but maybe the extent to which he has struggled uh, hadn't really set in for me until I went this morning and I started digging around and looking at his stats. And I brought up you know, when you're when you're trying to figure out looking at a player's hot streak or his slump, you know, it can be kind of difficult. And this is one of the things that I think makes studying the hot hand difficult is when, you know, when is a hand or a bat no longer hot? Um, and so what I did, it's very arbitrary, not scientific at all, but I just went through and I kind of looked at when was the last time you know, Wong's hitting line was high, kind of a high watermark across his slash lines and his baseball reference game logs. And on June 5th, Wong was hitting 314 three, uh, with a 366 on-base percentage, a 471 
slugging percentage. Um, and he had, uh, let me look up the weighted runs created plus here. I didn't have it up on my screen. He had a 131 weighted runs created plus. 7.6% walk rate, 14.3% K rate. And of course, his batting average on balls and play was a rather high 345. Uh, since then, his line, his offensive production has fallen off. Over that time period from June 6th through play on Saturday, August 15th, because these game logs do not have today's game included, but he did not have a hit today. It was another 0 for, for Colton Wong. Uh, he's hitting 221, 292, 332 for a 77 weighted runs created plus. Uh, it's been quite the fall off for Colton Wong. Yeah, it's uh, it's been pretty rough lately. You know, after watching how good he looked early in the season, to see all of a sudden that he appears to have crashed back to earth in a big way is kind of frustrating. Um, particularly because you look at this offense, you know, this is an offense where you need multiple guys to perform at once in order to really score runs. Um, and the whole time that Matt Carpenter was going through his issues, you know, Wong was kind of slumping too. And so you had, you know, like your number one and number two kind of hitters, or, or obviously they weren't necessarily hitting at the top of the lineup at that time, but... Um, all of a sudden, you've just got multiple parts of this lineup breaking down. And this isn't a lineup that has one guy like an Albert Pujols or a Lance Berkman or one of these kind of guys that we've seen in the past where so long as they're still hitting, even just a guy or two gets on base and you've got something going. This offense has to chain together multiple positive events. And, you know, when you've got a guy like Colton Long who's just not not contributing much at all here lately, it uh, it really quickly becomes very apparent and really frustrating to uh, really really painful to watch. Yeah, it's and he's been struggling a lot. Um, his walk rate, as I noted, has fallen off quite a bit. That's maybe the most worrisome thing for me, because, um, you know, I mean, he he's never been an extremely patient hitter and he probably never will be partially because well, partially because it's the kind of player he is he has very good contact skills um, he is pretty aggressive but also because he does have some pop I mean he can obviously hit the ball over the fence but I don't know if he's ever going to have enough power to frighten hit to frighten pitchers out of the zone consistently you know what I mean? I, I'm not sure he'll ever get to that point where pitchers feel like they have to really be careful with him. Um, so long as you avoid throwing it kind of down and in or down and sort of over the middle of the plate, it doesn't seem like he has enough power to really hurt you. No, I think you're right. And plate approach is one of the things uh, that I worried about with him he kind of reminded me of Matt Adams last year without the power, or so maybe he reminded me of Matt Adams uh, this yeah, year. You should no, he reminded you of Matt Adams kind of last year. Yeah, too. well, that's that's fair. Um, but he had he had decent walk rates in the minors, 
and early this year he didn't get off you know his his early results were not that impressive like through you know i don't know the first two or three weeks i remember folks starting to grumble and you know one of the things that i took heart in was his approach he was being patient he was attacking fastballs in areas of the zone where he could do damage with them and a lot of times he was fouling them off um, he does have a tendency to chase those high fastballs every once in a while um, and he will go fishing down and away too but that's usually with two strikes um, and not uncommon for hitters just generally right um, but what gave me hope was he just looked a little bit more selective like he had a better command of the zone and he knew who he was and what he wanted to do and he was going up there and executing a game plan with a good approach at the plate and he was working walks if the pitcher was going to give him a walk and didn't cut the plate with some, with a pitch that he could do damage to and if he if he got in control of an at bat you know he was able to work a walk and you know so when you see that walk rate dropping um and you see maybe that line or i shouldn't say maybe uh his line drive percentage uh has dropped off a bit from 25.7 to 21.8 percent um but i don't think that is you know fueling his batting average on balls and play drop um, he's also still making some pretty consistent, solid contact. So what you hope is, you know, maybe he's pressing a little bit, and maybe once a couple hits fall, perhaps he'll start getting a little bit more patient. But I do he think... relax and doesn't feel like he has to make it happen because it's not happening. Right. I Right now, when you watch Colton Wong hit, I feel like this is just an exhibit of what a hitter who is pressing at the plate looks like. Yeah, uh, it feels that way. And so you hope that, you know, slumps are not fun and they can feel, they can just be kind of disorienting and you are working extra hard to get out of the slump. But sometimes the best thing to do is to just let go and just stop pressing, stop putting in the extra work and just go be the player that you can be. And, you know, you kind of got a hint of that uh, in Derek Gould's article about Matt Carpenter's slump and how the Cardinals were trying to help him get out of that. And part of it was, you know, just let go what happened the day before mm. and just go play. And, you know, Car- Carpenter has turned back around, and I don't think there's much reason to believe that Wong will not turn things around. It's just that their slumps did overlap, and they were long ones. Uh, Wong still is. Carpenter's come out of his. And I'm not saying Wong's going to come out and hit eight home runs in two weeks. Although he has that potential. He's done it before. Um, He does. He he has really streaky kind of power surges, it seems like. So we might have one of those, and we'll be looking back at the podcast and saying, oh, Ben and Aaron, what were you worried about? I think it's worth worrying about because it's a guy's second big league season, and it looked like he had put it together. And now, you know, he's in this slump. Um, but these things happen. I mean, Johnny Peralta's in a slump now, too. Yeah, Johnny's actually had a... Peralta's really had kind of a rough, you know, second... Not a second half of the season, because obviously we're not through that. But 
sort of the back half of what's been played so far, he's really really had kind of a tough go of it too. Oh, you know, a lot of this offense has. And it part of it is probably it's you know it's late July, early August, and they're probably hitting a little bit of a wall, especially playing their home games in St. Louis where it's hot and humid. It's pretty rough. You know, talking about Wong though, um, it's kind of. When, when we were talking about the plate approach and things like this, it's kind of the John Jay problem, isn't it? That, you know, I mean, he is not a particularly patient hitter and so is extra subject to the vagaries of batted ball luck. You know, because like you said, the line drives are down a little bit, but not enough to explain why his batting average on balls and play has been so much lower and, and the batting average and all these other things. The problem is, is, you know, he is a very aggressive hitter. And for an aggressive hitter, when the hits aren't falling, you don't have much else to to lean on. You know, a guy like Matt Carpenter, even when Carpenter was at his worst during that slump, he was still walking 11, 12, 13% of the time. So he was still getting on base at a pretty good clip. The slugging was terrible. The batting average was terrible. There were times when we would watch him wave through a fastball, you know, three inches off the outside corner, and it felt like he was never going to make contact with anything again. But he was still getting on base at a pretty good rate. You know, a guy like Colton Wong or, or John Jay or some of these guys who do not take walks, if you hit a run where you're still hitting the ball fine, but it's just fine hitting gloves... You can look a lot worse than you actually are, and you produce much, much less than maybe you deserve to. Whereas a guy with a more balanced patient approach, he can survive, and he can kind of weather those storms a little bit better than a guy who is relying on you know, the random number generator to, uh, to cue him up a single now and again. And that's definitely true. I mean, when you're looking at the ups and downs of... Uh, you know, a batting average on balls in play uh, and being dependent on that because you don't walk. You don't have that built-in, you know, Matt Carpenter last year when his batting average on balls in play dipped. And when it dipped this year, he's still a very valuable hitter because he's still getting on base at an above-average rate. He's getting on and giving his teammates a chance to do something, you know. And so it's... It's definitely something where one of the reasons you would like to see a hitter be more patient is it helps create a bit more insulation uh, from a sort of how deep or how bad a cold streak or a slump gets. Um, I wanted to share something that I find kind of amazing uh, with everyone. Fangraphs has uh, batted ball data. And it includes, you know, line drive rate and hard hit percentage, medium hit percentage, and soft hit percentage. Uh, For the season, Major League hitters as a whole have a 21% line drive rate. Uh, During his slump, Colton Wong has a 21.8% line drive rate. Before the slump, it was 25.7%. For the season on a whole... Major League batters have a 28.6 hard hit percentage. Wong, during his good playing time from the beginning of the season through June 5th, had a 27% hard hit rate, which is below average. During his slump, 
according to Fangrass, from June 6th through Saturday. He has a 31.2% hard hit rate. And yet his batting average in play has dropped. His ISO has dropped. His batting average has dropped, and his on-base percentage has dropped, and he's not drawn as many walks. So the universe is a real dick sometimes. Yeah, it is. It's one of the, when you look at that, and you look at okay, his line drive rate hasn't dropped that bad, and his hard hit rate has actually gone up during this slump. You feel pretty good about his chances of breaking out of it, don't you think? I, I do. I think so. I mean, I think he'll be fine. Um, and like we said, the one thing that concerns me is the degradation or sort of the the. I don't know. The way that his plate discipline and his plate approach seems to be struggling right now because he's trying to make it happen. That's the thing that concerns me. Yeah. He is chasing more and you know, it seems like he's chasing worse pitches. He's still putting good uh you know, pretty good contact on those pitches. And so I do expect those numbers to come back up. I don't think this is a broken player. I think this is just a thing that's happening. But the one thing that does worry me is while the hits aren't coming, he also seems to be compounding that by, you know, chasing, by by trying to make it happen, by pushing, and, you know, rather than trying to stay patient and have a consistent approach, he seems to be going outside himself to try and, to try and hit his way out of the slump, to try and make it happen. So, you know, that that's the only thing that concerns me. As far as the batted balls, he's fine. He'll be fine. I mean, you know, he's not the player we saw earlier in the year. He's not that hitter consistently. He's not this hitter consistently either. He's probably something like what we see when we look at his season line. He's probably a slightly above average league hitter, above league average hitter, I should say. He's a guy who's going to play solid defense. He's probably about a three to three and a half win player. He's probably never going to hit sort of superstar levels that we might have felt like he could whenever we were watching him hit, you know, four or five home runs in a week. But if you've got, you know, an up-the-middle player who can give you three-plus wins a year, that is a tremendously valuable commodity. And that's what I think Colton Long is. Um, He's probably not a star. The ceiling is... He probably has the limited ceiling we all looked at him and said he had back when he was drafted. And it doesn't appear that we were incorrect about that. But that doesn't mean that he's not a very good player. I agree. Um, I did an interview on the Hawaiian ESPN radio station a little while back. Really? And it was when they had moved Carpenter to the second spot in the lineup and moved Wong to leadoff. And... Um, I said I thought that was the arrangement that the that was kind of the Cardinals' ideal arrangement because it would you know they could have Wong Steele and those types of things and I'd be surprised if they went away from that. Little did I know that both of those players would go into such a deep slump. Uh, but when I did that interview, you know they they had asked me it was after his slump had kind of started uh, if folks should be worried and I you know I just said something you know he's not a, he's probably not a 300 hitter. He's probably a 275, 285 hitter. And, you know, his on-base percentage and his slugging, you know, you can, you know, you can kind of figure that out just based on his batting average because he doesn't draw a lot of walks either. And so, you know, I think that's probably where we will see him 
finish up the year is in that range. And I think you're right. He's a three, three and a half win player. You know, he could have just some uh, batting average on balls and play crazy year. Like that would not surprise me because he hits the ball hard. And if he just has one of those seasons, uh, you know, I could see him hitting like 310 one year. Um, but that's probably not going to be his career rate, especially in this offensive environment. And that's okay. He's a very good player. Uh, I like watching him play because he always plays all out. Um, he even gives himself concussions diving for balls. So uh, he's fun to watch play, and he has a little bit more pop than your uh, run-of-the-mill average second baseman. And so I think the Cardinals have a very nice player there, um, but I think the folks who were sizing him up as perennial all-star uh, may have been getting ahead of themselves. Um and we're seeing that now as he's seen sort of a dip. But I'm with you. I Sort of him pressing, he's chasing a little bit more out of the zone uh, of late. And you worry that that kind of starts a bit more of a downward spiral where you start to press, you start to chase, and that makes it more difficult to make good contact and get out of the slump. But, you know, he's going to have like a two or three hit game one of these days. And, you know, the light switch is going to go back on and, uh, hopefully he'll be able to ride that into another successful postseason. Yeah, I think he'll be fine. A very hot hitter uh, this year has been Randall Grichik. Unfortunately, uh, Mike Matheny had to remove Grichik from today's game uh, due to an issue in his throwing elbow. And he is going to have an MRI due to right elbow tightness, which is what they are labeling it. Um, this is kind of concerning. The Cardinals, for all the outfield depth they had earlier this year, they're getting a little thin out in the outfield now. Yeah, this this feels like a scary injury, doesn't it? it it's kind of amazing how quickly Grichik has gone from, uh, you know, kind of depth player and really intriguing skill set to, we, we need this guy out there. He is one of the very few sources of, of fairly consistent power on the team. Uh, he is filling a spot that they don't really have a whole lot of players who are attractive options there. Um, you know, I mean, I am obviously still in the Peter Borges camp, but you know what? The fact is that Randall Grichik hitting anywhere near his ceiling is, a, is an entirely different player from Peter Borges. And this is a team that does need... It's a team that lacks power a lot of the time. And so to get that kind of power from a premium position, it, it, that's kind of a big deal. And all of a sudden now we might be staring down life without Randall Grichik for a while. And it feels really, really frightening. Yeah, it's scary. Um, I was interested in the quotes from manager Mike Matheny. Uh, he indicated that Grichik could have gone up and hit again but they didn't want to risk throwing him out there defensively uh, and making a throw in the outfield, given that it, he was having elbow issues. And uh, then Matheny was quoted by Jennifer Langosh, or Langosh, I always do that. Jennifer Langosh of MLB.com quoted Matheny as saying, he's a young player trying to figure out how to play through things. This needs a closer look to make sure that it's something that he can play through. You can't do that mid-game without having all that information. And, you know, this is just a real interesting area for me because I feel like 
you know, the injury and sort of this quote, like the difference between playing hurt and playing injured. And I read the quote, he's a young player trying to figure out how to play through things in the end quote. And I was sitting here thinking, well, is Matt Holiday an old player trying to figure out how to play through things since we brought him back? Uh, the Cardinals brought him back and then he re-aggravated his quad injury and is now out many more weeks. Is Matt Holiday trying to figure out how to play through things or does, you know, what does that even mean? He's a young player who's trying to figure out how to play through things. You say in one breath and then your next breath is, uh, we need to figure out if this is something he can play through. So we need an MRI. But even then, we're still going to have him push it, probably, like they did Matt Holiday. It's just a very strange thing because it's – it seems like a very fine line. It's uh, it's a touchy thing, you know, when, when you talk about guys – because obviously you're paying them a lot of money to be on the field and to perform. But if they are physically compromised, then having them on the field – you're still not getting what you think you're paying for there. Um, but, I don't know, it's it's really uncomfortable to hear the manager talk about, well, he's trying to figure out what he can play with, or what he can play through, I should say. Because, yeah, he is probably capable of playing through some things, but... There's always that question of, is playing through it just learning to be sore all the time? Because, I mean, we know professional athletes, by a certain point in the season, everybody is always kind of sore. That's just the way it is. It comes with the territory. But if you're teaching a guy what he can play through, is that increasing his his chances of being actually injured? Or is that... I don't, I don't know. It's, it's very uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to try and consider, you know, what this means for the future of the team. Uh, you know, you don't want to see a player push it, like you said, like Matt Holiday, when he's back out on the field and the team is telling him, well, you know, just don't run real hard out of the box because we think that you at 80% is better than this other guy at 100%. I hate that line. Um, and there are times when it's true. I remember watching in 2003 when Albert Pujols was playing left field under strict orders to not throw the ball under <laughs> any circumstances. I, rem- I remember watching Edgar Renteria trot almost out to left field completely for Albert to sort of shovel him the ball because they wanted his bat in the lineup, but they couldn't find a place to put him where he didn't have to throw, and the elbow was too bad. Um and and I just I don't know I don't know how you strike that balance I, I really don't um, you know I mean I I I want to give Matheny and the organization the benefit of the doubt on this one because for all the faults of Mike Matheny I don't believe he's the kind of manager who's going to try and run his players into the ground I do believe he's a guy who has a tough time taking the players he believes in out of the lineup. But I don't think he does it out of malice. I don't think he does it out of this sort of misguided tough guy notion. I think he has his guys and he wants, you know, those are the guys he wants to go to battle with. I, I think he has a lot to learn about when to rest players and, and when you need to take your foot off the gas a little. Um, 
you know, for all the uh, for all the faults we saw with Tony La Russa, and, and there were many, Tony La Russa understood when to lose a battle to try and win a war. Mike Matheny does not have that yet. He wants to win every single game every day. Consequences be damned. We see it in his handling of pitchers. We see it in, you know, guys not getting days off, all this kind of stuff. Um, so I, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt here. When he says Gritchick is trying to learn what he can play through, <clears throat> pardon me, I, I want to believe that he's saying Randall is sore, Randall has some stiffness. He's maybe trying to figure out whether or not this is a thing that is serious or if this is just a thing that he's going to have to kind of learn to live with. But, you know, the question is, if it's a thing he just has to learn to live with, is there a reason that it's happening? And wouldn't you prefer for a player to back off before it turns into something real? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And it's a very nuanced one, and it's different for every player. It's different for every uh, health issue that arises. Um, but I think that you are right. You know, Matheny is, does like to keep his uh, foot on the accelerator with this team, uh, and he has shown that. And, you know, just going around and asking relievers if they're ready to pitch, and if they say they are ready to pitch that day, then they're, they're going to pitch. And, you know, the idea that, you know, a pitcher like Kevin Segrist throwing a third day in a row is better than another reliever who maybe threw yesterday but not the two days before that. You know, that's just such... He gets so caught up, I think, in roles that it's not so much about assessing a player based on where he is uh, as it is whether or not this player fits this role and it's time for this role to be uh, used. And I think right now Randall Gritchick is the starting center fielder for this team. And he will be the starting center fielder unless, you know, an MRI reveals that he needs to go to the disabled list. Whether or not he should be getting uh, players more playing time uh, like Tony La Russa did, and that's something that I thought Tony La Russa was pretty good at. And the way that Tony La Russa framed it, I also thought was really brilliant. You know, it's saying, I want to keep you fresh for the home stretch in October. And I also want to keep this bench player sharp so he's ready to contribute, you know. <laughs> and so it was such a clever way of selling it to everyone. And uh, it's interesting to me that, you know, Matheny doesn't seem to do that. Now, there's also a chicken and egg argument to this to an extent, too. Because you look at players like Matt Carpenter or Johnny Peralta, they don't sit out a lot. But, of course, who would you play in place of them, you know, Pete Cosma. And with Gritchick, I think, you know, you brought up Borges. I think Borges should play more. Um, whether or not he should be spelling Gritchick more often is certainly an open question. But uh, I think Borges is a, is a higher quality backup in the outfield than what the Cardinals have on the infield. But if, yeah. Gr- if Gritchick... He's a higher quality backup in the outfield than... I'd say probably 80% of the teams in the in, in baseball have. Um, and Pete Cosma is most definitely not. Yes, absolutely. But here's something that I wonder. You know, Piscotty's gotten some time in center field. Heaven forbid Gritchick is injured and has to hit the disabled list. 
do you think that we'll see Moss in the outfield more and Piscotty in center more? Or do you think we'll see Piscotty in left, Borges in center, and Hayward in right most of the time? Whatever the option is that leads to less playing time for Peter Borges is almost certainly what will happen. Okay. And we're, 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 I don't know why that is, but I'm fairly certain that what's going to happen at this point. <laughs> he does seem to uh, be out of the manager's favor. I mean, well, they could call up Tommy Pham again and just play him over Borges. That's true. They could do that. And, and you know what? I actually wouldn't have a huge problem with that. I like Tommy Pham a lot. Um, if you were to tell me right now that Tommy Pham will be healthy for the next five years he'd probably be the guy I would bet on as the best option to start in center field over Gritchick, I think. He's so old, though. It's true. He is 27. That's ancient. Uh, you know, yeah. So he would be 28, 29, 30, 31, 32. Yeah. I, would, I would take Gritchick. Would you? Yep. And that's setting aside injury history. Although Gritchick is yeah. kind of getting... You know, it's kind of He's making me wonder. Fragile. Yeah, he is. And I wonder how his skills hold up if these, you know, naggy, this back injury and this forearm injury and this foot injury, if all these start to add together, I mean, he doesn't make a lot of contact. He's awful dependent on his speed. You know, he's also dependent on bat speed. You know, that's kind of worrisome a little bit. But... If we're taking health out of the out of the equation, I still say Gritchick. If you take health into account, it's Gritchick, and it's no brainer. Yeah. Um, but if you take health, if if you take health out of the equation, uh, I I would still take Gritchick because he's younger, uh, and I just think, you know, I think the sun is kind of setting on Tommy Pham as a St. Louis Cardinal outfielder. He's just he's too old uh, into injury prone the and injury I, thing is absolutely i mean you know my my contention here would be like i said if i if if you could tell me magically that he was going to be healthy for five years that he would miss you know a couple weeks in year three with a tight hamstring or something but you know that he's not going to have any more serious injuries i think he is he is the best sort of combination of all the tools that different outfielders have to offer. Um, you know, he's as fast as Gritchick is. I don't think he's as fast as Borges. He has better plate discipline than either one of them. He strikes out way less than Randall Gritchick, walks about twice as often. Uh, doesn't have quite the power, but he does have above-average power. You know, he's good on the bases. He's got, a, you know, he used to have a really good throwing arm, I did not see uh, much evidence of that when he was up earlier this year. But uh, he was always, you know, touted as having a huge throwing arm. So I just, I feel he's a very well-rounded player, particularly in terms of getting on base. His on-base skills are vastly superior to Gritchick. And so that would be kind of where I'm coming from with that question. But we know that's probably not, uh, that's not realistic. Tommy Pham is what his injury history says he is. Yeah, and I like Pham, don't get me wrong. But, you know, at some point you got to be realistic. And, you know, he's... Uh, unfortunately, I just I don't know if I see it happening. Now, 
you know, he could be the fifth outfielder on this club if they trade Borges. Uh, Which they probably should. Um, and who knows? Maybe maybe Fam gets his chance at age 29 once Jay and Borges are out of the picture, and he's the fourth or fifth outfielder at that point in time. But I'm not holding my breath. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, with him in terms of his physical health, because that's, as you say, that's the driving issue. That's the factor that's going to determine whether or not he is able to make it to the majors and stay in the majors. Uh, and I'm just, you know, I think probably with good reason, I think he's just a little long in the tooth now, and I don't see his health getting any better. Although you never know, Ryan Ludwig was a guy who had some health issues, and then he finally made it up to the majors and was able to have a decent career. So hopefully Fam is able to do that as well. Um, to see, because I do like him. I, I like him too. Uh, hopefully, you know, we always hope for the best for the Cardinals and the Cardinals uh, minor leaguers. And speaking of those minor leaguers, we've got a, a fresh crop of minor leaguers, the 2015 MLB draft class. And, uh, you know, you are our MLB draft guy, and I thought it might be fun. It's very early, uh, but let's take a look at some of the early returns and some of the early scouting on the Cardinals draftees. Uh, what do you have for us? Um, well, I, was, uh, I know that uh, you and John kind of went through some of these things. Well, you guys did a, a prospect podcast not too long ago. He did a column on the early returns not too long ago. Um, I was specifically looking at, at, at their first-round pick, Nick Plummer, the other day. And uh, he has maybe the single strangest batting line I've ever seen from a top prospect. He is currently, he is finally above the Mendoza line. He is hitting 204. His slugging percentage is 303. You look at those two numbers and you say, oh, well, he's clearly not hitting. His on base percentage, though, is 361. And his WRC plus, which is league adjusted but not park adjusted, is 112. So he is actually an above average hitter while hitting for zero power. I mean, well, not zero power. His ISO is 099. <clears throat> he's in the J zone. He is kind of in that John J zone, yeah. <clears throat> But he's not, you know, he is striking out almost 25% of the time, which is actually better than it was for a while. He was creeping up toward 30 for, for a bit there. And it's because he is walking in almost 17% of his plate appearances. The strange thing is this. I have seen, you know, prospects come out of the gate fast. We, we've seen guys come out and be too good for their league, be too, uh, too good for the level. I've never seen one where the only way he appears to be too good for the level is that he doesn't swing at anything that he doesn't want to hit. Um, it's really a, a strange... It's a strange profile. And, and I wrote at the time, you know, about some players that he kind of reminded me of. And I, I think I threw out J.D. Drew at the time of the, uh, of the draft. <clears throat> On further reflection, that was probably a little too optimistic um i think it's easy to forget just how ridiculous an athlete jd drew was uh, beyond the plate discipline and some of these other things i mean this was a guy who was being compared to mickey mantle for a reason it wasn't just because he was you know a, a 
Well, there are lots of reasons, but he was being comp to that guy physically for a reason. You know, Plummer is not that kind of of athlete. Someone threw at Shinsu Chu a little later, and I think that's a pretty good comp. But looking at him, there was actually another player that came to mind for me, and kind of this uh, this middling power never had the over the over the fence kind of thump that you think of, but got by on. I mean, Plummer steals a lot of bases. He appears to be a pretty good outfielder so far. The early returns are encouraging. I don't think he's a center fielder long-term necessarily, but I think he could be a really good corner outfielder. Um, Now, the guy I'm going to comp him to actually turned into a terrible corner outfielder later, but early on he was pretty good. But this crazy kind of plate discipline and things like this if I said Bobby Abreu, would that sound completely out of range to you? Um, no, I, that's an interesting thought. And it's, you know, how much of this, you know, I think we were talking earlier that Jeff Moore at Baseball Prospectus said that uh, Plummer knows the strike zone better than the umpires in the league. And... Uh, and that's something that I can totally, and I only bring that up because that's something I could totally see someone saying about Abreu. I mean, that guy just was a grinder at the plate. He t- worked counts. I, he he was like Matt Carpenter. Uh, very very similar player. And you know that's that's an interesting name to throw out there. Um, you know, with and we have to keep in mind it's 128 plate appearances, but it's 128. Or excuse me, that's sorry, I've got the wrong one up. Uh, 181 plate appearances, but that's a 16.6% walk rate over 181 plate appearances. I mean, that's pretty. That's pretty that crazy. Kid getting his first taste of pro ball. It, it's very strange. You know, normally you look at guys, and whether they're hitting or whether they're not seems to be largely a function of how they're driving the ball because they're not patient. They're out there trying to swing away. They're just trying to get their feet wet, trying to find a comfort zone. He came out of high school, went directly into pro ball, and the first thing he did was stood there and refused to swing at anything. <laughs> I've never, I don't think I've ever seen it before. It's a really, really strange profile for a guy straight out of high school like that. I mean, like, you you look at Bryce Denton's numbers. And, uh, hold on a second, Pull those up. I should have had him in a different tab, but I was like going back and forth between them. Well, he's swinging at about everything and coming up empty a fair amount of time. Yeah, you know, uh, and Bryce Denton is also, you know, he just turned 18 about two weeks ago. He was as young as anybody for his class. 6.3 walk rate, 18.8K, which isn't terrible, but, you know, very little power, real low batting average on balls and play. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, you know, looks like the guy who comes out and isn't overmatched necessarily, but is going up there just trying to find it, you know, just trying to figure out where do I belong at this level, you know, and and pitchers are coming after him, probably guys who are a little more advanced, a little more experienced, some of them, maybe not all of them, but, you know, all of a sudden he is big fish in a little pond going to little fish in a much bigger pond. And that's what it usually looks like when a guy is making that transition. The walk rate is low. 
the strikeouts may not be astronomically high, which is kind of nice that they're not in the case of Denton. I mean, it's still under 20%, which is pretty good. But he doesn't look like he's making great contact. He looks like he's just trying to feel for it. Um, you know, kind of like what we're talking with with Colton Wong. He is, you know, he's not having great luck on balls in play, and he's just trying to feel for it. He's trying to make something happen. So you chase a little bit more, and you swing at pitches you probably shouldn't, because rather than just let it happen, rather than wait for your pitch, you're trying to make it happen. You're trying to, you know, generate something on your own. And that's what young players usually do when they're first, uh, their first taste of pro ball. They go out there and they try to make it happen because they think that's what you're going to do. You're going to not go out there and you're going to have success because you're going to make yourself have success. And that's not how it works, but that's how it feels like it should. You know, and that's what we see with a guy like Denton. A guy like Nick Plummer, I've never seen this before out of a, out of a prospect where he just refuses to do it any way but his way, basically, even when he's not having a whole lot of success. So I'm, I'm really, really kind of fascinated to see where this goes. Um, but, I mean, you look at, at, at Abreu. I was looking through his numbers the other day whenever this came to me. You know, 14.6% career walk rate. 18.3 on the strikeout rate. Now, Plummer is higher than that on the strikeout rate, but again, we're talking about less than 200 plate appearances. Um, you know, Abreu did have a 183 ISO for his career, which sounds really high, but we also have to remember that most of those occurred in the late 90s and early 2000s. You know, so that's kind of a, uh, you know, an elevated number. Um, for instance, here, here's a, a fun fun one to demonstrate the difference in eras in 1999 Bobby Abreu hit for a 151 WRC plus that is 51% better than league average what do you think a 151 looked like in terms of a batting line in 1999 oh man I bet we're looking at a on base percentage in the 370s and probably an ISO around 200. You are way, way low. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. You're right on the ISO. It was 214. Bobby Abreu with a 151 WRC. So, again, half better than a league average hitter. We're not talking about a guy who's hitting, you know, Miguel Cabrera 190s. Uh, Bryce Harper's 206 that he was at a couple weeks ago, where they're just destroying the These are not Barry Bonds numbers. Bobby Abreu walked in 16.5% of his play appearances that year. His line, 335, 446, 549. <laughs> that is a near 1,000 OPS, and it was only 50% better than league average. That's the kind of difference. And, and, I don't. I say that because I know I myself have really struggled to adjust in my head what a good batting line looks like the last couple of years. But that's you know that's crazy, and that just gives you an idea of how different the eras were. <clears throat> uh, any other prospects on your radar? Um, as far as other guys on the radar, actually, you know, someone I've been, uh, 
I've been paying a lot of attention to lately is uh, Corey Luttrell, uh, the uh, left-handed starting pitcher throwing at Palm Beach right now, high A. He was the other player the Cardinals got in the John Lackey trade when they uh, when they moved Joe Kelly and Alan Craig last year for John Lackey, which is already looks like an incredibly brilliant move by uh, by Mosellock, but. The more I look at the the other player they got at the prospect, uh, the more intriguing I think he is. He is he's refusing to walk anyone basically this year, uh, which is really really interesting. And I, I I've had a tough time getting my hands on good video of him, but I, I've got a little bit of video on him. I've got a little bit that isn't out there. And looking at the stuff, looking at the delivery, or not so much the delivery, but the way he goes about his approach. And, and I wanted to, uh, I wanted to see if you thought of the same guy that I do whenever I, I describe to you. <clears throat> so we're gonna play guess that cop, okay? You ready? Okay. All right. Now Corey Luttrell is left-handed pitcher. He is not quite as tall as the player I'm thinking of, but he's fairly tall, kind of willowy. Uh, he works with a hard, sinking fastball in the upper 80s, creeping into the lower 90s. He has a changeup that acts almost like a split-finger fastball. It wants to drop straight down at the plate. Really, really a nice pitch. And then he's got a big, sweeping, kind of lazy curveball that he works with his third pitch. Now, he's an extreme ground ball pitcher. He strikes out roughly an average number of hitters, and he doesn't walk anybody. Who does that make you think of? Oh, are they current or former? Former. Former, former Cardinal, as a matter of fact. Former Cardinal? Former Cardinal. Lefty? Left-handed. Huge ground ball rates. Did not walk anyone when he was good. Think of the splitter. I'm drawing a complete blank. Got a little bit of a Mark Mulder thing going on. Oh, really? That's kind of who he reminds me of. Not necessarily the delivery, like I said. I, I'm not trying to talk mechanically. Honestly, I've only seen... I've seen a fair amount of him. I have not seen enough to really make a good you know, comparison on the mechanics or anything. Uh, when they get him to Springfield, I'm hoping to get some video, hoping to make the drive and really see more of him. But I've seen enough of the stuff. That's who he kind of reminds me of. That's interesting. He works exclusively low in zone. He really, really works. Uh, he's one of these guys who's going to be hurt badly if they do decide to pull the zone up from like mid-shin to knee-high again, he might be hurt by that. But he doesn't walk anybody. He strikes out a decent number, um, but he gets by by keeping the ball on the ground with... And like I said, his is a change-up that acts like a split finger instead of the actual split finger that Mulder threw. But as far as the stuff and how they use it, that's who he reminds me of. I, I think that I've just blacked out Mark Mulder in my mind. It's easy to do that, and I can't believe you. That was a it was a rather dark period. 
but I the the breaking ball, you know, now you've got me conjuring up Mulder in my mind, and I can see what what you're going for there. I was hoping you were going to say Chuck Finley. Um, <laughs> no, Finley was Finley was a little bit more of a power pitcher. Yes, he was, but like by the end. There was a little bit more guile there. Maybe than... By the end. Yeah, you might be right. By the time Chuck Finley got to the Cardinals. Yes. It was maybe kind of more what you're thinking of or, or more what we're talking about. Yeah, but uh, no, he, he's kind of reminding me of Mark Mulder looking at And you know what? Finley never had that good a control, I don't think. No, I, I, for some reason I was just thinking, and maybe I just have a bad memory of him, like just coming to the Cardinals and being – you know, the Duncan incarnate, uh, you know, that adjustment that they all seem to make when they come here. But yeah, yeah, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't really limit walks all that well. Um, And his, it's amazing. His ground ball percentage actually dropped when he came to the Cardinals. So, yeah. So what do I know? Yeah. Um, And I don't think that his stuff is necessarily all that great a comp either. Um, but yeah, Mulder, man, there's probably a reason I, I haven't heard a Mark Mulder comp <laughs> in a while. No, no one wants to go you know, there. I mean, it's just his career, he was so good early on and then it ended so quickly that he's really an odd duck to try and compare anybody to, you know, because he didn't have what looks like a standard career. He was really good and then just dead in the water. Um, actually, you know, it's interesting. I was, uh, I was watching some video of Mulder pitching in Oakland not too long ago. Um, I was on YouTube, and what was I even watching? Oh, I was watching, it was an old Oakland playoff game from the early 2000s, like the 02 NLDS or something, I think. I don't remember. But I was watching Mark Mulder, and it really, it occurred to me, his delivery in Oakland looked completely different from how it looked in St. Louis. Um, And the difference is that when he was in Oakland, he arched his back as he came through and, you know, got up on top of the ball. Because, you know, the way you adjust the arm slot for a pitcher, whether he's down low, three quarters, up top, is with the shoulder tilt. You know, you look the arm angle, the angle of the arm relative to the torso is fairly constant. And it has to do with how much a a pitcher's shoulders are tilted as to what his arm slot ends up being. And in Oakland, Mulder, after he came out uh, out of his leg kick, he arched his back, tilted his shoulders, and came through with a high arm slot, and everything moved down. When you look at him throwing with the Cardinals, his back is perfectly straight. And he's trying to get his arm up to the same spot where it used to be. But it's mechanically impossible to throw a ball overhand with your, your uh, shoulders like perfectly level. You just can't do it. Physically, you can't do that. And I know he started having back problems back in 2003. And then in 2004 is when we saw he was great early in the year and then fell off a cliff and really started to uh, really started to look like he was regressing. And then, of course, the Cardinals traded for him because we don't pay attention to trends, I guess, under Jockety. I don't know. And 
by the time he got to St. Louis, he looked like damaged goods already. But I really, I, I had never looked that close at the delivery pre and post when he got here. But he looked like an almost completely different pitcher. So I wonder if the back issues forced him to completely, if they forced him to not be able to throw the ball the way he meant to, and the only thing he could think of to try and fix that was to try and get his arm up without making, without moving his body the way that it would allow him to. That's a, that's that's very interesting. So it's not that interesting. Uh, well, no, I I think it is because you make an interesting point. And then when he came back, like he was just slinging the ball across his body. Yeah, couldn't couldn't get the arm up at all. But it was I remember uh, all those articles about Dave Duncan talking about you know how he had to get his arm up. He had to get his arm up to where it used to be and things like that. And the problem is the way you get your arm up is to you know change the angle of your shoulders and your spine and once he started having back problems i'm not sure he could no i think you're probably right i think you're right and i would actually like to i would like to write that up sometime and look at the two videos problem is it's not real real high quality video that i can get of those old games so it'd be a little iffy to try and write it up but i might do it anyway because i think it's interesting and i think it's interesting to look at a guy and see how different he looked from one place to another when we knew there was something going on performance wise we knew there was something going on health wise and i wonder if it was just as simple as the delivery changed because his body changed well and i think that you're i think you're probably right i think that's probably it hopefully uh latrell does not have no, 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 true, yeah. And, and actually, he's he's a little bit of a lower arm slot guy than Mulder was. Early in his career, Mulder was real high, and he got on top of the ball and really drove it down. Latrell's a little bit more of a three-quarter guy. Um, it gets that same kind of natural sink, though. Um, but but back to him. His walk rate in, uh, in high A right now is only 3.4%. That's amazing. It, it's really, really kind of incredible. And he didn't walk a hitter for, I think like a month and a half or something in, in the middle of the season. He just didn't walk anybody. But uh, he's he has caught my eye as a guy who, at the time, you looked at him and, I mean, with the Red Sox, his strikeout rates were 22.9%, 21.2%, but he was walking, you know, 7, 8, almost 9% of hitters. When he came to the Cardinals, all of a sudden – the strikeout rate dropped way off. It was 13.6 in 2014. His, his, uh, his walk rate was right where it had been at 7.1%. Now this year, strikeouts are back up a little bit to 18.6, not back over 20 where they were with the Red Sox, but the, the walk rate has just disappeared. You know, And if you remember correctly, we saw a similar thing happen with Joe Kelly. Not that his walk rate adjusted a whole lot, but when he got to the to the Red Sox, all of a sudden he was striking out way more hitters than he had before. And it seemed like the way they wanted him to pitch, he was working up in the zone more. He was going more four-seamers. He was trying to strike out hitters and pitch away from contact, whereas the Cardinals wanted him to do nothing but try and throw ground balls. You know, he threw really, really hard, but he didn't miss many bats. 
and at the time we thought it was strictly a matter of well his delivery is easy to read or the fastball is kind of straight or the way it moves or whatever I think you know looking at, at the way certain pitchers when they come into the Cardinal organization the way the walk rate changes the way kind of their approach changes I think we could it, it might be a really deeply ingrained organizational thing where we're still seeing some of that Dave Duncan pitch-to-contact philosophy, even if we don't hear about it all the time anymore. That that would be another topic, but there's just so few, you know, minor leaguers changing hands. That... That's the problem. It'd be really hard to get enough numbers to make any kind of sweeping statements or really to come up with a, a solid conclusion. And it could be that maybe the Cardinals, you know, it may not be so much pitch to contact as try to limit walks, which is, you know, there's a huge overlap there, right? Like, True. You know, it, maybe the Cardinals just want their pitchers to work in the zone more right. than other organizations. That could and, be. And I don't, I don't know what, like, the Cardinals' pitchers, you know, zone ratings and things like that look like compared to other organizations. I, I just don't know. But I'd be interested to know. Yeah, that that would be a very fun thing to look at because it also comes down probably to instruction because that would even form the basis of a comparison. But how would you ever find out what organizations are telling their prospects to do? You know, that's they're not going to answer you if you ask them. So. Right, right. Well, with that uh, interesting question raised, uh, I think we need to wrap this up. Uh, as always, Aaron, it was a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Yes, it was wonderful. I apologize for the uh, technical difficulties with my throat midway through, but uh, other than that, yes, it was good. Hey, it's all right. You got some water. You you learned you're still a young podcaster, and you're learning what you can work through. Yes, there you go. I realized, you know, after a certain point that, well, you know, my, my throat might be scratchy, and I'm trying not to cough, but... I'm not going to lose my voice over this. So I, I can push through and power through this and be okay. Mike Matheny would be proud of you. I'll be dead tomorrow. <laughs> um, if you have any questions for us that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, feel free to shoot me an email. My email is veb.bgh at gmail.com. That's veb as in Viva Albertos. BGH is in Benji Humphrey at gmail.com. You can listen to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Buzzsprout.com, and of course, VivaAlbertos.com. Uh, if you're listening on iTunes, please subscribe to us, write us a review. It helps us gain a little bit more notoriety on iTunes when it comes to podcasts. For Aaron, my name is Ben Humphrey. Thanks for listening, and go Cardinals!